0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be looking at the results of this week's midterms in the US, Ed Miliband's role in Keir Starmer's Labour, and the king's love of classical music. First up, in his cover piece, The Spectator's Deputy Editor, Freddie Gray, says that the only winner of the American midterms was Paranoia. He's joined by our economics editor, Kate Andrews. Freddie, to start with, what should we make of the results from this week's election? Well, the key question
0: at the moment still is the Senate. It looks as though the Republicans have won Nevada and Wisconsin, although that's not firmed up as we talk. It looks as though they've lost Arizona, which would mean that it's sort of tied at 49-50 in favour of the Democrats. And then it goes to Georgia, which is looking almost certainly like another runoff, which it was in 2020, because neither candidate has a majority of over 50% or within 0.5% of each other. So it looks as though Georgia will decide the Senate, Democrats will have a slight advantage there, and so it looks as though they have the slight advantage to hold the Senate. In the House, the House of Representatives, it looks as though the Republicans will win quite easily, but nothing like the substantial gains that they had Uh, they had been expected to get.
1: Well, in terms of that expectation, Freddie, we've had a lot written about in the media, both in the States and over here, about the predictions of a red wave. Why does it look like that hasn't happened, do you think?
0: I think what's interesting is actually the polls, the public polls, were really quite clear that it was going to be very, very tight in the Senate and that the Republicans were favourites in the House, but not by as much as some Republican pundits said they would be, and the polls are right. The, the I think the pundits got a little bit overexcited about because it's all about narratives, mm-hmm. and the narrative over the summer was that the Democrats were doing much much better because of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, and that Joe Biden had sort of addressed inflation with the Inflation Reduction Act, and there was the, the Democrats seemed to have a little bit of momentum. Then about a month ago. That story started being turned on its head because everybody said, actually, the Democrats have misjudged it. The economy is still the most important issue. And that turned into there's going to be a red wave again. I think what probably happened was that over the summer, the Democrats did pull a bit closer and then the Republicans pulled away a tiny bit in the last few weeks as people focused on the economy. And so it was always much closer, as the polls suggested, not the
1: insiders talking about secret polls that they've seen suggesting a red wave. Hmm. Kate, just a little more than two years ago, you wrote an article for The Spectator about how, as a lifelong Republican, you were going to begrudgingly, it must be said, vote for Joe Biden because of your, your dislike of Donald Trump. I wonder how you feel about the election this week, given that you know, Trump said that he, it was going to be a great night. And then in the end, it looks like a lot of the candidates that he personally backed failed. So what's your analysis of, uh, of the election this week?
2: The Trump candidates are a mixed bag, but overall very disappointing in terms of their results. J.D. Vance in Ohio won by a comfortable six or seven percentage points, and uh, the candidate that Trump backed in North Carolina also won his Senate seat. But in the critical states that mattered for actually taking the Senate, to, to see that Turnover that the Republicans desperately needed. States like Pennsylvania, states like Georgia, it's clear that the Trump candidates have severely underperformed. And, and Georgia is an interesting one because the governor there was in a very heated race. Brian Kemp was in a race with Stacey Abrams, which was actually a rematch from 2018 when Stacey Abrams really struggled to admit defeat to Brian Kemp, saying that she felt that she had lost because of voter suppression, kind of the OG of election deniers, if you will. So th- they were battling out again. That was a that was a very tense race and Kempf beat her comfortably. Compare that to what's happening in the Senate, whereas Freddie says it is almost certain to go to a runoff now. It's very telling that voters went out and split their ballots in this election. That's when an American shows up and decides to vote for one candidate in one party for, say, the Senate, another candidate in another party, for, say, the House or their governor. They were really considering, I think, thoughtfully considering the character of each candidate. And some of these more eccentric, and I would say election-denying candidates that Trump forward uh, are ones that have not done so well. And I think that this is a a wake-up moment for the Republican Party that it didn't have after the 2020 election. If you look at the electoral map of this midterm, it is almost identical to where we were in 2020. It's like we're stuck. Yes, there are a few changes, but it is a story of Democrats and Republicans holding their seats rather than seeing a red wave or any kind of big upset. And I think if Republicans want to become unstuck, I mean, this should have been a huge election victory given the fact that inflation is at a 40-year high in the states. And it wasn't. If they want to become unstuck, if they want to see more results like Ron DeSantis' huge win becoming a second-term governor, they need to consider their relationship with the former president. And and I suspect the more you look into it, the more you'll see that he's actually a drag on these tickets.
1: But does that mean, Freddie, that he's not going to run again, even if you might, from an outsider perspective, be able to say that Trump has had a, a drag on some of the results tonight, but that's not necessarily going to stop Trump from running, is
0: it? Well, I think Kate makes some excellent points, but let me read you out a truth, which is, means a post, a tweet, on Truth Social, which is the Trumpist social media network. This was seven hours ago. So well ahead of time. Trump said 174 wins and nine losses, a great evening. And the fake news media, together with their partner in crime, the Democrats, are doing everything possible to play it down. Amazing job by some of really fantastic candidates. That's obviously Trumpy spin. Mm. Uh, it's ridiculous. It's absurdly phrased. But he has a fundamental, fundamentally true point, that of the candidates that he backed, the vast majority... One. the problem for the republican party is that in the senate races the two big what two very big ones that he backed Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania and Herschel Walker in Georgia Mehmet Oz has lost Herschel Walker it's very tight it's going to be a runoff I think you could make a very convincing case that a less Trumpy not necessarily it's not about necessarily politics it's about less kind of Trumpy that these guys were picked mainly because there was they seem to be celebrities, hmm. you know, and they kind of, they made, they entertain people watching the news. And, you, you know, you could, I think the problem for the Republican Party is that they cannot get away from the fact that Trump controls large parts of the machinery of the dynamics of their party. That hasn't changed tonight. I mean, I think there'll be a strong push now for Ron DeSantis. I see the the New York Post has put on the front page the future, was it was it?
2: Something like that. Uh, the future. Hang on, let me just look that It up. is not so the best wordplay I've ever seen. <laughs> hang on.
0: The future, yeah, sorry. Yeah. There's definitely going to be this big push to sort of persuade DeSantis to run against Trump. But as Devin Nunes, who runs True Social for Donald Trump and is quite close to him, said, if you are a Republican running against Donald Trump, you have a death wish. And I think that is still
1: probably true. Mm. And Freddie, I just want to ask you about a point Kate just made about we're seeing in some ways a repeat of 2020 reflected in these midterms. And one element of 2020 that was, of course, new at the time was all these different methods that votes can be cast and therefore that the votes are counted. And you suggest in your piece that now, because the process is dragged out over a much longer period of time than historically it would be, it's not exactly healthy for... America's democratic cohesion. Do you wonder if you could explain that a little bit further for our listeners?
0: Well, I think everybody can see and can agree that it's madness that America at the moment can't seem to get the basics of democracy right. That is having an election that is decided clearly. I can understand that when things are very tight, it's hard to have clear decisions. But the fact is there are failures. There are electoral failures again tonight in Maricopa County, same as 2020. And of course, that feeds into Trumpist paranoia about the fact that the system is rigged against them. If you don't want people to think that, make the elections work properly. And it's staggering that given that how important for the whole world, the, sort of the global economy, markets are hanging on to what's going on in America at the moment, they can't get these things right. And I think in a same as I say in the piece, in the same country, both parties would get together and there'd be a, a federal agreement on how to regulate modern voting habits. That hasn't happened because
1: America at the moment isn't a very sane democracy. Okay, what do you what do you make of that? Do do you agree that the only real winner in this election is paranoia?
2: Um, well, it's definitely not the Republican Party and it's definitely not the Democrat Party. So I I, I like Freddie's assertion in his cover piece this week that it is paranoia. Look, it is It is good news for the Republicans if they take the House, which they do look set to do, because practically speaking, it means for two years, anything Joe Biden wants to do, he's going to have to actually bring to the table rather than pushing it through with his very slim majority in the House and the Senate. That won't exist anymore. So from a a practical point of view, the American system is going to work as it was designed to work back in the day. Basically, it's very hard to get anything done unless there's compromise watering down and vast agreement. But I think it's, it's really difficult to see, apart from a few candidates last night as the Republican win because apart from abortion, which I do think um, the Supreme Court's decision to overrule Dodds and return the decision to the states did play a factor in the midterms it was something like a third of people coming out in the early exit polls that we have said that the overwhelming issue for them was inflation and price rises and essentially the economy. And if the Republicans can barely get over the line in the House and not take the Senate, in states that are very open to voting Republican, Pennsylvania and Georgia here in the past few election cycles have shown their willingness to vote Republican if the right candidate for them comes along, then they should be extremely worried about what comes next, I think. Fred pulled up that true social message there from Donald Trump. And it it is interesting to think about, you know, where Trump candidates succeed. I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that in those swing states where voters are craving something more moderate, that is the nature of those swing states and a lot of independent voters, the Trump candidates just don't do well. And it's not clear at all that if Trump were to become the 2024 nominee, that he would have any interest in catering to those seats.
1: And Fred, finally, so we've spoken a bit about prospects for trump and what the midterms mean for trump could you tell our listeners what the what these um, results might mean for biden he of course is often campaigned at being a unifier he famously said let's stop the shouting and lower the temperature i think it's fair to say that that hasn't quite happened but do you think that since we haven't had a full red wave as pundits predicted and it's been more of a red ripple will that shore up biden's position
0: i think probably yes then again, there is a certain feeling in the democratic circles that if they can just persuade Biden that he hasn't been a disaster, then they might be able to push him aside. Uh, this will help. This result. This, help, well, this will help. Yeah, they'll be able to say, look, you
2: better than Obama, better you, than Clinton. You didn't,
0: yeah, you did. You did great. Now, please get out of the way. I mean, it's very obvious to everyone who isn't deluded that Joe Biden is too old to be president. By the end of his second term, if he wins again, it's quite terrifying to think what sort of a state he will be in. I suspect that because of the lack of other options still, Biden will end up being the Democratic nominee. And he can say, I'm
1: the person who who beats Trump for you. Thank you, Freddie and Kate. Next, in the magazine this week, Isabel Hardman writes that Ed Miliband is the power behind Keir Starmer. She joins me, along with Lord Stuart Wood, former advisor to Ed Miliband, and before that, Gordon Brown. Isabel, could you start by telling us what you have gleaned from speaking to those within Labour?
3: Yeah, so this is, I think, really surprising to a lot of people outside of Westminster who thought Ed Miliband was so 2015, and actually he's still a very influential figure within Keir Starmer's team, And to be fair to him, one of the reasons he has become so influential is that he works really hard. Uh, He's done a lot of thinking since he was leading the Labour Party, both on politics, but especially on policy terms. And very importantly, in politics, people get on with him. He's a really likeable person and he's good company. So, you know, he's not a sort of Rasputin, sort of sinister character, But it does beg the question, it begs a number of questions. One is, is Labour's offer at the next general election going to actually be a reheated, regarnished Miliband sandwich? Or is it going to be Starmerism? And I think for everything Keir Starmer has done with the Labour Party to detoxify it, including booting out another former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and doing a lot of work on anti Semitism, we don't really know what Starmerism is yet. And what policy announcements we have had, particularly at the party's autumn conference, have felt very Milibandy. And this has caused quite a bit of resentment amongst other frontbenchers who, you know, again, don't have anything personal against Ed Miliband but feel that he's getting much more of a hearing than somebody who did have a disastrous election defeat when they were leader should get.
1: Could it not be argued, Isabel, that given how far ahead Labour are in the polls right now because of well many factors in terms of Tory collapse, but could it not be argued that perhaps it doesn't matter, at least for right now, if we don't know what Starmerism is, if Labour are indeed so far ahead of the Tories?
3: Yeah, and... Look, if you talk to people, even those who are quite annoyed that Ed Miliband seems to be in Keir Starmer's office or at least in his head so much, they'll say, look, now is not the time for like detailed policy pamphlets on, you know, our education policy or our NHS policy. We need to be painting in broad colours about what the the party stands for. And, you know, we've we've done a huge work piece of work on fiscal responsibility. Rachel Reeves is a very tough shadow chancellor, so on and so forth but they are also acutely aware that the electorate at the moment are turning away from the conservatives rather than running joyfully towards labor humming things will only get be- things can only get better and that's something that keir starmer is very aware of i mean he he texts his front benches and other sort of senior labor personalities quite a lot saying you know we're in real danger of being too complacent that'll be our greatest enemy things seem to be going well but they'll you know they'll go badly soon and all that sort of thing partly because you know things have been going well and it's a long way until the next election you know we're not on the eve of poll we're not even in a campaign yet so um so that caution from him in this instance is is very much merited
1: Stuart, I wonder what you make of, of Isabel's arguments there. And, and I wonder, as, as a former advisor to Ed Miliband, if, if you could give us an insight onto how he operates.
4: Well, I think there's some truth in what Isabel says. I mean, it's, Ed is an ideas person. I mean, in a way, his leadership suffered, I think, from the fact that there were, he led too much with idea after idea rather than the broader range of the palette you need to be a successful leader. I think he might, might say the same thing about himself in retrospect. He's an ideas man. He decided to stay in politics after it was a pretty crushing defeat. Not the scale of it, but the fact of it was, was crushing for the Labour Party and for him. He decided to stay not just in politics, but in Westminster, precisely so that he could help Labour in its next incarnation, or maybe the one after next, as it turned out, try to get back to power. So the fact that he's producing ideas in his brief is not really a surprise because Ed is an ideas person and that's the kind of job you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I think what's happened is that conference, Labour Party conference, I mean, Isabel is right that Keir has made a choice not to pepper the world with policy. And in a way, I mean, I've been a critic of it, you know, internally and externally a little bit in the last couple of years, but in a way he's been proven right by the fact that there's been such turmoil in the government and such a change of leadership and then another change of leadership not just personnel, but direction, that actually if you'd have populated the world with all sorts of policies with a certain kind of government in mind, you'd have had to reconstellate it anyway. So in a way, his tactical caution has been proven right. However, at conference, there was, there was a need for something, particularly for younger people on the soft left and further left of the party, I think, to, to show that Labour was in business. And I think that the, fact, the, great, the great British energy idea that Ed Miliband came up with served that purpose. And, and in the run-up to COP... The COP conference recently, he's, he's been in the front line too. Those are the two concrete bits of evidence that Isabel Marshall's, and of, and of course, that's right. I think the broader thing, though, is that there's a lot of things that I'm sure that the Labour Manifesto when it comes around, we will have things in common with what happened in 2015, just like the Tory party manifesto will have things in common with the Tory party manifesto 2015. Mm. I think it's one thing to say that Ed is an ideas man who's very energetic. Another thing, and I don't, I reject this idea, that Keir is somehow in hock to the Milibandite agenda of 2015. I certainly hope he isn't because I think, you know, not only did that lose, but there were lots of things that were wrong with it. And more importantly, there were things that, are no longer relevant from it. So for all those reasons, I think Isabel's tapped into something about Ed's energy and and profile at the moment, but I don't think it speaks to a Keir-in-the-pocket of Ed Miliband's story about Labour.
1: And you you said just then that you've been uh, critical of Keir Starmer in the past. Uh, You, of course, as well as having worked for for Ed, you've, you've also worked for Gordon Brown. I wonder how you compare Keir Starmer to those former leaders of the opposition. And do you think perhaps you haven't given Keir quite enough credit.
4: No, I, no, I don't give credit. I give quite a lot of credit. I just think that I would have liked for them to, to have more of an ideological direction, I guess, so mm. far. Not to have 20 policies. I think mm-hmm. there are lots of policies. But signature policies, I think, are are for another time. They're, they're not yet. But I think that the, the ideological character or the kind of values character of, of the Labour Party under him is the thing that needs to be established. Mm. I think they're alive to that. I think they have their own pace and their own timing to do that. I think the task at the moment is to... Characterize the new government and to and to be on the attack, and that's completely right so I, I'm only restless for a little bit more i guess identity in terms of the sort of labour party that Keir wants to lead, Mm. I think a lot of people around Keir sort of feel the same. But I think he knows his own mind and he has his own pace and his complete obsession with not being complacent. And Isabel's right. Everyone gets reminded of that by him and his team on a regular basis. It's totally Mm. the right place for us to be, probably nearly two years out from an election. Well, Isabel, let's look ahead, if we may
1: then, to the next general election and the practicalities of a Labour government that we may be faced with. You've mentioned in your piece that there is a lack of cabinet experience in the party and that only two members of the shadow cabinet have actual cabinet experience. I mean, do you think that's something that as we approach 2024 will be more of a problem for Labour?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a problem for, for Labour back in 97 as well. It's it's a problem for any party when they come in to government, uh, even if they have good ideas and opposition, just getting them done and the sort of, you know, the timetabling of it all, and understanding what's under the bonnet is is a big task. Take, you know, something that I occasionally talk about, which is the NHS, and...
1: You the, have mentioned it I've, once in a while, Yeah,
3: yes. I don't really find it that interesting, haven't just written <laughs> a massive book on it or anything like that, but... Um, But if you talk to Tony Blair about that, he'll say that, you know, he hadn't really thought that much about the NHS before becoming prime minister, because there were lots of other things to think about as well. And so you you come in and you've got all these different areas that you've got to work out what to prioritise and so on. And I think what is a challenge for Keir Starmer, if he is, as some around him like to sort of joke, the sort of the hole in the donut when it comes to policymaking... Does that mean that the next Labour government is going to be focused as its core mission on fixing things? And, you know, there are quite a few things that will need to be fixed after the next election. And that was certainly the thrust of Keir Starmer's speech was to sort of tell people to imagine, you know, a world where Labour was in power, where the NHS had gone back to what it was like before the backlog and all that sort of thing, which would be lovely, actually. I think there's a lot of people who are thinking, yeah, I'd rather not wait two years for my hip replacement. But it's not a big, captivating vision of changing Britain. And so does that make you a sort of, you know, a one-term repair job government? Or does it make you, like New Labour, a government that changes Britain and that doesn't just clear up messes from the previous party, but actually, has a has a view on how to change public services, how to change the way that politicians talk to to the public, for for better or worse. I think at the moment, Labour are in that first camp of of sort of things really should be being done properly, which is a very you know Keir Starmer thing. And a lot of the people I talked to for this piece said he's more like a chief executive, and they meant that both as a good and as a bad thing. In that. Actually, one of the things that politics probably could do with, and we've seen a lot of that this week is people who know how to manage people, run organizations, and get things done. but you do also need to to have a, a big vision as well and and I, I, that you know as Stuart has said hasn't manifested itself yet
1: well Stuart, finally, just looking at the the polls at the moment and uh, ever since Liz truss and, and quasi. Coteng's budget, there's been an extremely large Labour leader of the Tories, and that hasn't really shifted very much, even with the replacement of trust by Rishi Sunak. Do you think it is, at this point, a foregone conclusion that the next Prime Minister of this country will be Sir Keir Starmer, or would that be hubristic of Labour to assume that the Tories cannot recover? It, it wouldn't only be
4: hubristic, it would be just plain stupid if Labour thought that, partly because the volatility of polls in the last few years is just... Now a characteristic of politics, partly because even in even with those huge headline leads, there are things that should worry Labour that worry me that I know worry people much more senior in Labour than me, like the fact that on the economy, Rishi Sunak has pretty decent ratings and the economy is likely to dominate the agenda for the next two years. So there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, you're not going to win and win properly. If you think that somehow it's a foregone conclusion, so absolutely shouldn't think that. But I think Isabel's got made a very good point about the fact that the terrain on which Keir has been fighting—first Boris Johnson, then Liz Truss, and now Rishi Sunak—has centred around competence, integrity, and trust. Uh, and and they're the sort of chief executiveness. And that that's right. That's the kind of leader I think he is. It sort of suits the purpose, and he's actually very good at PMQs and in the sort of. The, the rather legal way that he sometimes prosecutes arguments in Parliament. I think that works for a lot of those, that territory of That The question now is, you, you've, you've got to show more leg in the next couple of years. Not yet, but at some point, as they know, you've got to show that you have something exciting about a different kind of country you want to build. Of course, part of it will be a repair job, but it's got to be something about Labour making a difference to the character of the country. That's the really interesting test, I think, of Keir and the leadership and the team. And I think you rely heavily on Ed Miliband and people around him to come up with ideas and candidates for that. Lots of people will be brought in because that's the kind of leader Keir is. So I think in you know, a funny way, the test, the test of whether Labour's going to win is not just ahead of us because it's a long way to go. It's ahead of us because the character of what you have to do in the run-up to an election is actually so different from the first three years of a parliament. Thank you, Isabel
1: and Stuart. Finally, in the Arts League this week, Damien Thompson discusses the King's love of classical music. He joins me alongside editor of Gramophone magazine, Martin Cullingford. Damien, I wondered if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about the King's sophisticated music tastes and perhaps tell us who some of his favourite composers are.
5: The King, unlike members of his family, and indeed, unlike any British monarch, for over 100 years, is a genuine enthusiast for classical music and has very eclectic tastes. He likes French baroque opera, he likes Beethoven, he seems particularly keen on Wagner, and especially he likes the music of the English musical renaissance. So he's a champion, quite rightly, of the music of Sir Hubert Parry, who, as I say in the piece, is the only composer of Victorian anthems whose work is sung regularly by drunks on stag nights and rugby club dinners? That is Jerusalem. Actually, Jerusalem gives me an idea of just what a wonderfully gifted composer he was. And the the prince made a television programme about the importance of Parry. What an interesting, sophisticated composer he was. So I get the impression that the king, as he now is is a very busy man, so probably listens to music in the car and, indeed, says that he once converted one of his drivers to Wagner by play, just playing Wagner in the car. I think you'd have to be fairly selective. If he was playing, you know, Act Act Two of Valkyrie. Magnificent though it is, if you're following the words, I doubt it would have converted anyone. But <laughs> here we have somebody... My main point is, here we have somebody who, as an English monarch, is completely unrepresentative of... The Windsor dynasty, but rather like previous generations of English monarchs who, dating back to well, Henry VII at least, were nearly all music lovers.
1: Hmm. Well, Martin, you've spoken to some of those who know the king and his musical tastes while you were writing your own article about the king's love of music. I, I wonder do we know? Where his love of classical music comes from? If, as Damon's just said, his uh, his mother and other members of the House of Windsor are not themselves music lovers, D- did he learn it from school? Is he a, is he a particularly accomplished musician himself? I mean, where does it where does it come from?
6: Well, he cites a memory of being taken to the Royal ballet at Covent Garden by his grandmother as a young child as a as a really formative experience. And actually, he's, he's urged other people to to do do likewise and make sure you sow those those seeds early. He played cello as a child and I, I know he played with fellow musicians at Trinity College. But but it's obviously just a, a thread through his life that he's developed him, himself. And talking to, to people in preparation for the article I wrote, it seems that it's both a, a very public thing, but also rather wonderfully, a lot of it is under the radar. And I say wonderful because I think that fact more than anything implies a, a really genuine passion. He he listens to music at home while travelling, as Damien says, in in the car where he converted a protection officer to a love of Wagner. I also mentioned that he's been known to sit in on rehearsals at Welsh National Opera, the better to enjoy the music without the trappings of a formality that the official visits can can bring. But he also approaches experts for listening suggestions, and then again the help for again for help in following up the particular things that he's heard and wanted to explore further. So it's also He's obviously an individual who latches on something he loves and wants to take that interest deeper and further. And, and I think we saw some evidence of some of these tastes in some of the shows that he's been involved in, on Classic FM and Private Passions and so on. And we're all aware that when choosing playlists for things like radio shows like this, there's an element of positioning that sometimes sadly goes on. How do I look? What does it say about me? But if there was any positioning in Prince Charles' choices for these shows he presented or took part in, it was, I think, only really to position music that he loved in front of the wider, widest possible audiences.
5: Yes, I mean, I, I was real surprised by his choice of the piano concerto in E-flat major by Sir Julius Benedict, which has actually only ever been recorded once by Hyperion in their wonderful Romantic Piano Concerto series. And it is a, it's a lovely piece. It's not a masterpiece, but it's very, it's very tuneful and life-affirming and quite ingenious, one of those pieces that really... One of those early 19th-century piano concertos like Hubbell's and, and Chopin's or where the, where the poor his fingers to the bone. He also chose this opera, a scene from this opera, by the, the French baroque violin composer Leclerc. Now, that's interesting. I think that tells us something, because that, at the time, I think, had only been recorded once, more or less rediscovered by Sir John Eliot Gardner, who's the founder and conductor of the Monteverdi singers and the Orchestra whatever he's got some ridiculous pretentious name. And is obviously is one of Britain's most important conductors, early music specialist who's branched out. Like the Prince is a is a gentleman farmer with very sort of firm views on organic farming. Jiggy, as he's known, is, is not universally popular in the musical world because he has a rather prickly and autocratic manner. I've written about it in the Spectator, actually, but he clearly gets on very, very well with the Prince. Mm. You know, I think they were neighbours, or near neighbours, at Highgrove, and 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 the Prince would sometimes, you know, drop off some organic marmalade or whatever, <laughs> it was at, at, at Sir John Elliot's house. So I think he's moulded the Prince's tastes
1: to an extent. Yes, and and I mean, there was an interesting point, Damien, that that, that Martin made, which is that the King, we you know, he sort of latches on to these these things that he loves. And we, we actually, unlike his, his late mother, we, we do know quite a lot about his cultural tastes. I mean, even beyond music, we know that he likes Shakespeare. He quoted Shakespeare in his accession speech. We know his opinions about architecture. Are we just in an era of monarchy, do you think, where we have a much clearer sense of the personal cultural tastes of the monarch to that of uh, um, the Elizabethan era, the second Elizabethan era? Well,
5: of course we know a great deal more about... King Charles, in general, <laughs> we know things about him that would be you know, absolutely inconceivable to, about, you know, about his private life. So we know about his musical tastes as well. We do know about the late Queen's um, musical tastes. Charles Brandreth reported that one of her favourite musicians was George Formby and she knew all the words to his songs and she regretfully had to decline patronage of the George Formby Appreciation Society. She wasn't into music. I mean, there's no yeah. doubt about that at all. Somebody once said, that time we went to The Marriage of Figaro, and she paused for a bit and she said, is that the one with a pin in it? And I, I think I'm right in saying that there is a tiny, a tiny role for a pin somewhere in the plot of The Marriage of Figaro, but that was, the, that was all she remembered about it. Let me yes, just add yeah. a, bit, a bit of a caveat. I did, after I'd written the piece, I did speak to one very fine musician, about the prince's taste and I said, you know, and, and apparently he's very knowledgeable and this musician said, well not that knowledgeable actually. But then, you know, we all bluff a bit about yes, our enthusiasms yes. a little bit. And I I tell you what, I the where I think he could I'm gonna use that horrible phrase, make a difference. He's already, I think, done something to improve even further the standard of liturgical music at British public, occasion, public occasions in even the, his father's funeral, where they were reduced to just the tiny forces and those four, what they, four, four trumpeters. Absolutely magnificent, austere and moving. I think that had something to do with him. But one thing he feels very strongly about is lack of musical education. And it's so true. I don't know to what extent it's true of other countries, but certainly in this country... I said he was bullied at Gordonson. I wondered if one of the reasons he was bullied at Gordonson was that he listened to classical music because I, I say in the piece it puts a target on your back if you like classical music, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. don't I just know it from my mm-hmm. own school days? People who listen to classical music, oh my god!
0: Yes, it's what a weirdo! It's what... <laughs> weirdo. They have yeah. to be
5: puffs. But the classical music education is dire. In Britain. Yes. It's absolutely awful in the average secondary school there is none there's virtually none and what yeah. there is has to be seen through the lens of multiculturalism and the only you know the only composer called Schumann anybody's heard of is Clara Schumann
6: um, <laughs> it is very interesting I think looking at the um, people constantly raising rightly as you have concerns about the support given to classical music education in this country, and, and it leads people to be concerned about how valued classical music really is at the highest level, but I think to know that it's greatly valued by our King is really not a bad position for us all to be in. And I think you know, one just has to look at the, the funeral, the committal, and as you say, his, his father's funeral, it's just an extraordinary demonstration of the country's music making, and actually just of music in in general, full full stop, and, and what it can do and what it can provide. and. To a certain extent, it's intrinsically attached to monarchy. Whatever the personal taste of a monarch, it, it will, will be there through royal patronage, through events like that. But the fact that the, the king himself has a, a very keen, deep and personal interest in, in the musical life of this country, I, I think is, is really wonderful, and whether it's things he can do under the surface, things he can inspire by words that he, he says, which will, of course, carry weight by commissions he can make, by perhaps the showcase of what he might put into ceremony occasions, like the forthcoming coronation. Well,
1: yes, I was was just thinking, Martin, about the upcoming coronation. And just to finish on, do you think then that the king's coronation could be a great opportunity for the king to exercise this, I'm going to use another ghastly phrase, soft power, in terms of showcasing some of his favourite pieces of classical music to the nation? I mean, it must be a great opportunity, must it not, for such pieces to have a good hearing?
6: I'd be very surprised if he if he didn't do that we we know that he chose music for Prince William and Princess Catherine's um wedding and and I think he's also spoken just about how much he enjoys programming so it's clearly something he, he loves doing and and if we look back to the the, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II it, it was a showcase of great British composers at the time I would be astonished if if King Charles didn't use this occasion to do do likewise. No, I I really look forward to finding out. And there.
5: can I just raise one question that's really intriguing me? The savage cut to English National Opera. Mm. Now the King said he won't be writing these letters anymore, but he must be absolutely itching to write to the Prime Minister about that.
1: Yes, yes, I imagine that, I imagine that it could well be the case. <laughs> Damien and and Martin, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you join me again next week.